So it turns out that former presidents and vice presidents walk away with classified documents, but I guess it's not so bad if you keep your stash in a locked garage, right? And how about that Ron DeSantis? He's really taken on those woke warriors in Florida, or is he going about it maybe the wrong way? On another front, how long will government hold on to special powers as the COVID crisis fades? We will discuss all these issues and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everyone. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try to bring you an independent take on the issues of the day, keeping an eye in particular on the fate of liberty. And as always, I am joined by my colleague, Williamson Evers. Hello, Bill Evers. How are you, Graham? Very well. It's good to see you. Uh, Bill Evers, of course, is a longtime education and policy scholar and is the head of our Center on Educational Excellence here at the Independent Institute. So um, we haven't talked to each other for a while here, Bill, and uh, there's some interesting things that deserve some comment, I think. In particular, I, you know, I'm, there's a lot of comment on this, but I think you may have more interesting to say about the way that President Biden uh, has been keeping classified documents that he walked away with when he from the end of his vice presidency. Um, <clears throat> apparently, they found these documents on November 2nd before the midterm elections uh, and handed them over to the archives and so forth and then found some more. Didn't say anything about it until January. <clears throat> and um, what do you think? I mean, President Biden, I mean, anybody can make a mistake. You know, you walk out with some stuff in your pocket and you forget it. I mean, I've walked away with pens from the office before. Is it the same thing? Well, I wouldn't say it's the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm speaking of somebody who's several times had uh, interim top secret uh, status so that I could look oh, at oh. top secret documents. I've also been through two presidential transmit transitions. So... I was serving in the George W. Bush administration when uh, he left office and the Obama people came in. And I was working on the Trump transition when uh, the Obama people left and uh, Trump came in. So I, I can tell you it's pretty chaotic and mm. lots of people leave <clears throat> before the end of the administration. So the people who are left are trying to carry on the activities of government with a truncated staff, and they're packing up, and everybody's desperately looking for jobs, places to land. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very easy for things to get mixed in that should have been turned over to the archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, these materials apparently were, I, were kept in an office uh, at a special Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C., do you right. think the vice president himself carried those things over or probably his staff or like, how does this happen? Well, I think it was packed by somebody <laughs> in his staff. He was clearly at the end of his time as vice president. He was traveling all over, receiving uh, an award from Pre- President Obama. He was you know, visiting Ukraine. <laughs> uh, it, it, I think it, you know the, the the weird thing at the Penn Center is that they were in a special personal file of his, so somebody might have put him aside for something he was writing. We don't know the contents yet, so it's not right. It's not. We really may never. Good. Well, uh, James Bovard, who's uh, uh, writes on many 
policy issues, uh, but has written on this, says, why don't you just declassify these things and you can declassify a lot of the Trump things. Right. There's a huge amount of over-classification that goes on. Well, President Trump said that a president can declassify them by thinking about it. <laughs> it's true that a pre- so so the whole system of classification is meant as an aid to the chief executive, to the president. Mm-hmm. So the president is also, you know, he's the commander in chief, so he can, uh, much as that's really a thing that is most important when the military is acting. But anyway, the point is he can declassify things. He has a complete power. The other set of, you know, they have a process also, but he doesn't really have to follow that process. Uh, it, it it does seem odd that for the things that he says he declassified, there's no record of this. That mm-hmm. would have been at least nice to do. I do think it's important to know that if you're, you know, if if uh, millions of people have <laughs> access to classified material, if trillions of things a year are stamped with some kind of mm-hmm. classified, mm-hmm. secure, top secret, uh, you know, whatever, skip, whatever, designation they put on them, uh, it's very hard to really prioritize what is important. And it also makes, Mm -hmm. because most of these classifications, according to these executive orders, can't be shared office to office. Sometimes it's standing in the way of important information getting around. So here's the problem. Many people, going back to Senator Moynihan, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who headed a whole commission on government secrecy and strongly advocated, you know, rolling back the amount of overclassification <clears throat> going on. But the fact is we spend much, much more money on the classification process than we do on the declassification process. Mm. And we have to think of the incentives that face mm-hmm. bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. So bureaucrats have every incentive to overclassify things. Right, I was thinking that, that, that like doesn't get in- them into trouble. When in doubt, classify. Exactly. So they can't, if they stamp everything classified, then something that gets out to somebody that shouldn't have, well, I stamped it classified, you see. So the problem is in the incentive structure of government, which is Mm -hmm. chronically adverse to the public's interest. After all, we pay for the generation of this information. Right. And uh, historians should also be able to get at it, uh, not to speak of contemporary journalists. So, on the other hand, it's hard to operate a government completely in the public eye. But the, the essential yeah, thing is that the classification. Well, of course, you know, the defenses against incoming missiles, yes. But. I just, I know from having been in there that it is way, way overclassified. It's certainly a hundred times what is really secret. Well, certainly then we could say that both uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump could be somewhat exculpated in the sense that there's just too much classified stuff. Um, Right. So so, so Sean Duffy on, on Fox News said, we're probably hyperventilating about the mm-hmm. content of these things. Even but the you, things that are marked skip, in other words, secure, right. compartmentalized information. Yeah, right. Those 
which are supposed to be the toppest of top secrets, even those are way overclassified. So then, many of them. If many. for hyperventilating, I guess maybe uh, Merrick Garland is hyperventilating and appointing a special counsel to look into it and so forth. But <clears throat> what's going on there? Do you think? Well, I think that's political pressure. Each time he appoints one of these special counsels, he carefully says, our professional staff could handle this just fine. But to make sure that Caesar's wife is above suspicion, he doesn't <laughs> right. use this. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think he probably quotation, but But that's, that's, yeah, and of course, by doing it for Trump, right. he, ha he has had to do it for Biden. So, right. And, it's, you know, the, the equivalency argument is an interesting one. And we don't really know how to evaluate that because we don't know the significance of the, the classified documents. Yeah, but the statute says you're supposed to put these in a secure location. Mm -hmm. And one not secure document is a violation of the statute. It, it doesn't That's matter true. your motives. It doesn't matter whether it's a garage or... You know, whatever. Or whether if you've got a Corvette not, or a Toyota in the garage, right? <laughs> hey, I'm always I'm a longtime admirer of Corvettes, so I can't pull <laughs> Apparently, President that. Biden is too. But what I don't get, though, is I mean, I get the fact that there's too much classified stuff. I get the fact that you know they're overreacting, and all these special counsels may not have been necessary in either case. What I don't understand in President Biden's case is that his very strong profession that he takes the protection of classified documents very secretly, more apparent, very carefully, seriously, 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 more seriously than Donald Trump does by implication. And yet he waited two months conveniently huh. after the midterm elections to disclose I agree. the fact. That, that, like, what's I going on with that? that? I agree <laughs> that that is a very troubling <laughs> coincidence, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, you know, people in government, think timing is pretty important, and I think they're right. probably right. And so politicians think that way. I don't, you know, I don't have evidence that they did that. There's no paper trail that indicates that. No, no, no certainly not. But I, mean, I think it, it seems <clears throat> obvious from kind of common sense and my own situational <laughs> awareness of what it's like in government. I mean, would it make sense really to say that President Biden and Vice President Harris were talking about this. It never even occurred to them that the midterm elections were just about to happen and that it might be advantageous for them. It didn't even enter their minds, right? No, <laughs> that it might be because <laughs> politicians have this very to the forefront in their minds all the time. Absolutely. I mean, they live and die by it. Their incentive is to maximize their vote and bureaucrats' incentive is to maximize their budget and their jurisdiction and their mm -hmm. power and scope of power and so forth. So, I mean, we can only speculate like um, one of the um, opinion writers at the National Review did, you know, how many votes might have shifted in these super tight exactly. races on November 8th. Uh, exactly, and, because, <clears throat> because the tr tr you know, a lot of it figured on the supposed strangeness of Donald Trump and that was kind of having an aura effect on Republican candidates, right, where right. if the problems of President Biden had come to the fore, it might have a, again, it's, you know, who knows? It's truly very speculative. Yeah, I, another speculation that's going on is that 
the, the revelation of this. So this was story was originally leaked to CBS. So who leaked it? We don't really know. Right. And there's speculation by a number of people that this is an effort to detach Biden from the presidential race in 2024. Oh, so really? that this is a way uh-huh. to ease him out of the picture. So, you know, he he declared he Polling looks okay compared to presidents in this sort of situation. And yet many Democrats think he's too old for it uh, or they don't like his policies for one reason mm-hmm. or another. And they like to see him replaced with another candidate. Well, how to do that? This <clears throat> might be considered by somebody on the inside as a leverage point. That's Again, pretty fascinating. There is, but there is no evidence. For right, this. of course. It's just this is speculative. It's speculative, but I think, you know, we can all see that somebody might think this way. Um, You know, the funny thing is, though, to my mind, I understand that uh, that that leak could imply somebody who might want from his own side to weaken the president because the weak the leak could only have come from someone in in house. And that's what leaks are about. Um, uh, At the same time, you know, you wonder. Uh, whether uh, the leak will ultimately um, would never have occurred possibly um, if President Biden's people had been more tightly under, you know, proper etiquette. Um, If the leak hadn't occurred, would President Biden or his team ever have disclosed that they were holding on to classified documents? Well, I just think there's a problem in Western societies, open societies, that you can't keep a secret very well. That's for sure. And as soon as a few people know it, it's probably going to come out. Right. So I, I don't, I don't think that's a problem. I will say another structural aspect of this is, if the Justice Department was going to sue or go after President Trump, they're now in a much more awkward situation. So. If somebody leaked it trying to move out Biden, they're doing it at the expense of somewhat hobbling President Trump. Right. So, Mm -hmm. again, I don't really think they were going to do this to President Trump anyway. I think, you know, they— Unlikely. The main main punishment for, for him and his stature was the raid itself. Right. And we, of course, noticed that they didn't have any raids on— Hunter Biden's houses or offices or whatever. Sorry, President Biden's offices or homes. And, uh, you know, so right right there, it's sort of a double standard, I think. Talking of the incentives that politicians seem to face, um, let's turn our gaze over to the Capitol and the struggle around the speakership. Um, it, right. You know, from from the outside perspective that most people are aware of, it just seemed like there was this handful of people who couldn't stand uh, Kevin McCarthy, and they were trying to uh, force their ultra radical, uh, you know, agenda on him and on the Congress, and they they pressured him and wrested a bunch of horrible concessions out of him. Um, how could that that handful of ultra MAGA people be so nefarious, Bill? Well, I think, first of all, the thing to realize is that the Democratic and Republican parties are umbrella parties. So they have 
different components. They have regional, you know, maybe Southern people, coastal people, Midwestern people. They have, you know, conservatives, very conservatives, a few libertarians in the Republican Party. The Democratic Party, they have socialists going over to some kind of maybe New Deal Democrats or something like that. So they have all these different things. So in a European country or in Israel, there'd be five or six parties, and then they would have to form a coalition. So in essence- As they what just you did see, recently. Exactly. So what you have in the big parties is you have uh, either a well-disciplined or a not super-disciplined coalition building. And so the speaker has to be able to satisfy and keep happy uh, all these different segments of the park. And that's what you saw going on. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it somehow violates the vision of Madison, the main writer of the Constitution, to have this kind of thing going on. And uh, the basic reforms that these people were looking for are not particularly bad. Uh, one is one of the most important is that instead of omnibus spending bills, where you have a thousand-page document that you get at the end of the time that's where it needs to be passed, you instead have you know ten bills that come out of committee. And they have been debated and so forth. So you're in a, in a position to examine and amend uh, bills. I think that's much more in keeping with a deliberative representative government. That seems to me extraordinarily valuable. I, I, again, yeah. this is one of the situations where the people who were pressing for that reform may have been politicians that I don't particularly feel attracted to. But, you know, I think they were uh, right on that point. And, you know, some of them wanted different things, a seat on a committee here or there or whatever. But, that's you know, ordinary that kind of thing happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That happens in other <laughs> situations, too. So, you know, let's say somebody is switching from being a Democrat to an independent. Well, then they make some kind of deal. I want to keep my seats on committees. I mean, legislators are always doing things <clears throat> like this, as Kristen Cinema just did. Then there's, so, of course, the replacement of the speaker rule that was agreed to, right. apparently. And that was considered, apparently, by many commentators to be a pretty disgraceful and going to usher in unstable government. But apparently, it's just rescinding a very recent rule that only exactly. came into play under That's right. Pelosi. That's right. So, so again, what's so bad about it? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I guess people... So... It's kind of a sort of Damocles over the speaker, but I think it's all right. I mean, other parliamentary systems have different ways to vacate the leader. And we have ours, and we've had some different rules at different times. I don't, you know, if a, if a person or a set of people start overusing something like this, their colleagues will react in a way that is dismissive, and they'll mm -hmm. be crying wolf too often, and they... <clears throat> won't be re regarded sensibly. So they should use it sparingly. And if they try and use it profligately, it will redound against them and their uh, ability to form coalitions themselves. So I, what, what I, don't, the... I don't see it as, it's certainly not dangerous. It might no. be, it might make it, 
I mean, if McCarthy thought it was impossible to do, he wouldn't have gone along with it. Mm-hmm. So, what was the uh, rule change that they, that the small group, insisted on regarding budgetary matters? I'm trying to understand this. Did you understand that piece of it? Well, part of it is that they want a, a budgetary planning that, uh, over a 10-year cycle, uh, gets us to a situation where we're not generating deficits. That in, sounds good. Well, I mean, the problem is, you know, are we ending deficit spending by raising taxes or are we doing it by cutting government? They also mm-hmm. want to use as a baseline for all future budgeting 2022. Mm-hmm. So they don't want – so there's just a budget passed that included a lot of additional military spending. And so the pro-military spending people are upset that this may now be reviewed and some of it may be cut back or trimmed back. And, of course, the different beneficiaries of domestic (laughs) spending are worried, well, if they're going to hang on to the military spending, maybe our pet project is going to be uh, cut off. So, you know, there's back and forth. The the Republicans don't yet have a plan for how they're going to cut some spending, but they're going to have to try and do it or they're going to have to not keep their promise. Well, we'll see mm-hmm. what happens. They're also going to vote mm-hmm. on uh, a kind of sales tax replacement for the income tax. I don't know what. Well, of course, the Senate, currently com- as it's currently composed, will not go along with that. I agree, but I don't, and I don't. You know, it's a whole huge separate topic: uh, tax oh, right. incidents. <laughs> right. Who. Who in reality pays taxes? Who nominally is paying taxes? What the advantages and disadvantages of income versus sales taxes and so forth? I don't think it's bad to consider it. I don't. I agree with you. It's not going to. I don't really even think it's going to pass in the House. So I think right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they're looking at it, and uh, I don't think see that as harmful. I think in general this was a positive thing. Uh, People say, oh, well, why couldn't they have negotiated it behind closed doors? Well, they actually <laughs> had been negotiating it mm-hmm. for months beforehand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like other things. The side of the guillotine focuses the mind. So <laughs> they, you know, the, the people on both sides had to formulate more clearly what it was that they wanted and what, on the other hand, what they would accept. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were forced to do this by this pressure. I don't really think it was a bad thing. But I mean, for me, you know, like a, 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 a summary moral of it is that sometimes obnoxious politicians can't advocate right. helpful things. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I, I agree with you that some of these uh, 20 people are not my cup of tea. Uh, but, you know, <clears throat> and also some people with similar ideology were supporting McCarthy from the get-go. Oh, they were, yeah. So they didn't not, actually disagree. Many, many Freedom Caucus people, for example, mm-hmm. uh, were supporting <clears throat> McCarthy all along and were not holdouts. So it's, <clears throat> it, I think they wanted, you know, some of them wanted individual perks, but some of them, the main thing that was being looked for were procedural reforms that I think Probably are to the good. So well, we'll let's see. let's see what happens with it. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit now uh, about another big <clears throat> uh, political news leader of the day, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who apparently is the front runner for the Republican nomination at the moment, maybe depending on what polls you look at. Um, certainly, one thing can be said for Ron DeSantis is that he doesn't seem to flinch from a fight, especially if it involves cultural, social matters. Um, it's it's pretty interesting to see him going for some significant changes in Florida. Uh, in particular, uh, I wanted to comment on this act that was enacted last year at his behest by the Florida legislature, signed into law by him, uh, called the Stop Woke Act. The Stop Woke Act uh, is the is actually apparently it's an it's an acronym, um, and the uh, state of Florida has actually put out a, a flyer. Stop, Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. Exactly, and if you can see this in front of you, there it is. This is what the state of Florida has put out to sort of explain the significance of the act. Yeah, it, it isn't. <clears throat> woke is woke is kind of a euphemism here. Literally means, as you say, wrongs to our kids and employees. So uh, there you have it. Um, you know, I, I didn't pay much attention at the beginning, but I've been quite fascinated by the disputes around this the Stop Woke Act. Um, the first thing I want you to comment, but I have a couple observations to make first. Sure. Um, you know, the, the first thing that's striking about it is that it's about. <clears throat> it's not just about schools. It's actually about employment discrimination law. It's about right. then K-12 education, and it's also about public higher education in Florida, all right. three areas. Uh, and, you know, in those three areas, uh, what it does is it prevents, uh, uh, for example, in the employment context, it would be a violation then of discrimination law for uh, an employer to require an employee to uh, be subjected, they use the word subject, <laughs> subject the, the person to, for the, on the pain of losing a job or losing credentialing or losing licensing, uh, so forth, uh, to an activity that espouses, promotes, advances, and inculcates or compels an individual to believe. And then it lists all the different things that are problematic. <clears throat> the key thing here seems to me to be that in employment, there's a recognition that under the Florida law, anti-discrimination law, that you can't discriminate against employees if they don't agree with your, you know, ideology. You can't force them uh, to, to to believe what the employer wants them to believe. And in this case, they can't. The employer can't force them to to believe, for example, uh, that members of one race, color, sex, or national origin are morally superior to members of another race. And you can't force them to believe that an individual by virtue of his race or sex or national origin, is inherently racist or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, and it goes on. There's so a let me, list let of me, things. Let me give you an, so let me give you an example. Please. Okay, so the old Elijah <clears throat> Muhammad Nation of Islam, which has kind of splintered, but still parts of it are around, and that's uh, the Louis Farrakhan's group now, they believe that blacks are a kind of heroic race and that whites are devils. Mm -hmm. And they also have businesses. So they have newspaper mm -hmm. and they have, mm -hmm. they have, at least in the olden days, they used to have bakeries and uh, usually in predominantly black neighborhoods. So let's say you have the Chavez X bakery. 
mm-hmm. and your employees are black Muslims. And uh, I come in and I say, well, I'd like to work in your bakery. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, do you believe that you're a devil? <laughs> right. Say, no, I don't really think I am a devil. <laughs> and uh, so, I don't know. I, I just think it's kind of heavy-handed to be micromanaging these things. And the more the government can get out of it, the better. Uh, I, I well, the trouble make, is the government's make, already make, in it. I know. Yeah, I well, know. especially in and employment law. I mean, we have a lot of laws. I hear you, because employment. they might They might also. I might be able to sue the black Muslims, not for not accepting my religious beliefs, mm-hmm. but for me being white and not being employed. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and likewise, if I had a bakery and a black Muslim came in and wanted to work right. for me, uh, I and I didn't accept that person, he could accuse me of doing it on racial grounds and maybe have trouble right now saying it's on religious grounds. But if I did say, I don't want you on religious grounds, it might be a problem unless I am Mm -hmm. a Catholic church or something like that. But this is a different kind of a thing because what the Stop Walk Act in Florida does is the key thing is that I'm just sticking on employment law right now. The employer, the business owners can't compel an individual to believe certain things. And the certain things in question are that, you know, races are unequal and and right. uh, I, I, I'm sympathetic <laughs> to the content of what they wish people would believe. I'm just thinking the government. Well, see, but the law in Florida be. is not requiring them. The law doesn't tell them what to believe. The law says right. that the employer can't compel the employees to believe certain things. The well, employees can believe what they want, but they can't be compelled under this law. They can't be compelled right. to believe this kind of thing, which seems consistent with well, individual liberty to me. <clears throat> No, I, I don't know that that's really true because it seems to me that if you exclude a set of beliefs that the person can say, I uphold, like, I'm a, th- I'm a thriftiness store or I'm, mm-hmm. a, you know, I inculcate <clears throat> values of thriftiness in my employees and somebody comes in and <clears throat> I, I just think it's weird to micromanage this. We already do too much. I would rather see <clears throat> a rollback of these sorts of regulations. I, I think, and and I, I again, I think in, Okay, so K twelve, I think, is sort of different because so that's yeah, that's another category of the law. There's as again the to repeat ed- to repeat myself. Right. There's employment law. There's K twelve. Then there's public colleges. There's three different things on this law. I would I would <laughs> like to see a diminution of micromanagement employment law. You know, I think if the if the if the owner of the store is defrauding his employees or her employees, okay, that's not good. If they're not being paid their salary for some reason when it's promised to them, okay, that's bad. But I think a lot of this other stuff, it becomes too intrusive. So I don't, you know, it's a lot of it's locked in. It's part of current ideology, so I don't know what will ever happen. But I don't. Well, I'm not sure that, I need a woke police going, uh, well, or an anti-woke police anti-woke, going right, in. right. But see, the, on the, the other thing hand, is, I, I think, I think, I think, you're, I think, I think you're that the pressures of the marketplace, I think the pressures of the marketplace 
will discourage these employers from pushing this on their employees. Well, I think that's true. I don't know. Yeah, I think that is true. Uh, in the schools, so, so there's, not a, there's no pressure the of the market. There's no pressure of the marketplace right. in, in schools. <laughs> that's right. And, and it is longstanding judicial belief of the Supreme Court and other courts that teachers do not have some sort of right of free speech to say whatever they want in the classroom. They have to adhere to the, if they're a public school, they have to adhere to the government curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so I can't really find fault with that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying I like the curriculum. I've certainly written against much of the curriculum, but I, it, to me, that doesn't strike me as an odd thing. Well, higher I, education know, is is more complicated. It is. Um, I want to. Can I you think, just hold off? Hold off on higher sure. ed just for one more long? Because I'm thinking sure. that what's so difficult about an, analyzing this uh, stop woke law of, of Governor DeSantis is, is that I think it would. It's a mistake to characterize the law as re, as requiring certain beliefs. The law doesn't okay. require any beliefs. What the law does is in employment and in K twelve, it tells the employers and the schools that they can, may not compel certain beliefs. So it doesn't actually okay. specify what the kids or what the employees are supposed to believe. It just says employers, teachers, you can't compel your employees and your students to believe these certain things. Le- leave right. them free so to believe I, what they want is what the law says. I, I, I can see that. And I, what my question is, and I think this is the question of the lawsuits that are mm-hmm. either in place and maybe being appealed and so forth, is what is the operational experience that the teacher is going to have or the employee or Mm -hmm. employer is going to have? Is it not going to be, even though this sounds pretty innocuous, and even though I'm sympathetic to the intent, aren't we going to have a bureaucratic police force of some sort that's going to enforce this? I know. That's the downside. That's... That's so the downside. I agree with you. I agree with you that the actual wording is fairly benign, mm-hmm. and I agree that the intent. I just worry well, look, about what it's going to be in practice. Right now, apparently, enforcement mechanism is they're using this now increasingly a clever mechanism whereby they create in the law a right of a right of private action. So that apparently enforcement is not primarily or even at all going to be done by bureaucrats looking at stuff. It'll be primarily by empowering, well, employees or parents of students in in those two cases to take take them to court for compelling them to believe these racist, Uh anti-individualist Well, I I have to say I think that's maybe better than that. Well, it's better than the other. (laughs) A bureaucratic uh, police force of some sort. So turning the corner uh, you know, the to whole, hire the whole the whole legal system in ancient days, medieval days, whatever pre pre modern days was private action. There was no right. that's right state court system. <laughs> there were no public prosecutors. There were private prosecutors. And uh, so anyway, um, again, it can be misused. I, we, we see Governor Newsom trying to. <laughs> Pass laws that mm-hmm. you know, use private private action. We see the Texas abortion mm-hmm. law 
maybe misusing it too. I, I think, but anyway, I, I think we have to maybe, we have to say good for DeSantis for standing up to this stuff. It may not, it may be too vague. It may be that it's going to not work out well. It could, we it can could, say it should be it could have unintended consequences. It could, <laughs> but it might work out okay. So, so I, but that's that's employment and K twelve. I think right. the higher ed part is is much more difficult to defend than the right. other two parts. Because, like this judge, district court judge, his name is Mark Walker, no relation. Right. Um, he issued an injunction against its enforcement against the Florida public colleges. Right. Uh, and and he used some very colorful language. I'm just looking right. here at what he said yeah. in his injunction. He said, our professors are critical to a healthy democracy and the state of Florida's decision to choose which viewpoints are worthy of illumination and which must remain in the shadows has implications for us all. If our priests of democracy are not allowed to sh shed light on challenging ideas, then democracy will die in darkness. <laughs> the, the judge has been reading a lot of uh, press releases, clearly. He's been but he's using onto a lot something. of slogans from the Washington Post. He's onto uh, something. He's onto something. But on the other hand, the state of Florida, in emphasizing that professors are public employees, is also onto something. And they as are. They would it's say, difficult. For, yeah. the, for, the, for the public school teachers. So it's. It's a complicated problem. I, my counsel to the, if, if I were being, if I were having the ear of Governor DeSantis, I would have said, <laughs> don't do this in higher education. Yeah, that's what uh, I would have said too. And, but I, I may be that, Graham, you and I are a special interest group here. <laughs> As we're both, Former, uh, you know, Higher college professors. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the so thing, maybe we just we no, we no. want to get the the big bucks uh, without well, having I, the regulations. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that the, the pay is any, any any bigger for college professors actually, but but I think right. the difference is not because you and I have a higher ed background. But I, I think the difference is the real difference is that employees and K-12 students are both uniquely vulnerable to coercion. Because right. in the one case, they could lose their job and their income. And in the other right. case, they're so young and impressionable. But college age, to me, you know, if you have a professor right. who espouses these horrible beliefs, you know, that, right. that some right. races are better than others and so forth, I don't think that espousing that in the classroom is going to hurt the college kids, or at least it right. shouldn't. They, they, they can – they can probably handle it, find alternative views. Now, right, of right. course, it's harder harder than it used to be to find those alternative right. views. But I think they can. And they can also have student groups where they bring in independent speakers right. and they mm -hmm. tell each other what an idiot that professor is and right, so forth. Right. And they write classroom reviews and they say, you know, if you go in there, expect a steady stream of Marxism or whatever it is that that professor is giving out. Right. <clears throat> Uh, racial identity politics, whatever they the right. students might be wrong, they might misunderstand right. the professor. Right. But the point is, it's it's a better situation now. There's another aspect to this. So many college colleges have federal research funds. Yeah, and one of the arguments that some people make is, okay, if you're going to have federal research funds. You can't have false doctrines like these 
doctrines being put out as institutional values. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. Because then the federal research funds are going to be expended in this mm-hmm. milieu mm-hmm. that is not going to produce objective truth. That right. Just ideological. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, that's... It's another ball of wax. That's also going (laughs) into a strange milieu. But it's an argument that's out there, and it's not a crazy argument. Not at all. I mean, so my analysis, Bill, is that the the employment and the K-12 thing is different from the higher ed thing. But further, the higher ed thing itself has two parts because higher ed is comprised uh, primarily not of professors, but of administrative employees who run right. all sorts of Truly. things, including orientation programs and HR and residential life. That whole side of universities is not about freedom of expression, and they shouldn't why, be. Why doesn't I think I think what DeSantis should be doing? Well, he could just fire those people. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He could just defund them from the budget. Like keep the, the profs, the get rid of all people, the so-called the equity bureaucrats. officers. <clears throat> right. Now, the, the reason not to do that, the reason to put this into statute is if he is no longer governor and right, some other person it. comes in, mm-hmm. they can restore the budget lines mm-hmm. more easily than maybe they can get members of the Florida legislature to say, oh, you know, we, we favor race-related <laughs> identity politics. I, I don't know the answer to this. You know another. And also, interesting- I don't. I don't envy these judges that have to. Oh make man, sense this is tough. Yeah, I mean, I do think though that there are some bright lines that have to do with coercion versus liberty in the right, right. context, uh, and maybe maybe it can be sorted out. But it's a it's a tough one. But the thing is, if if nothing was done, <clears throat> unfortunately, what's increasingly happening is that right. both in employment. And in K twelve and in higher ed, there's a massive co- coalescence and congealing of ideology all on one side. Uh, and, and so that you can't be surprised that somebody like DeSantis, <clears throat> right, who has a fighting spirit, mm-hmm. is trying to push back at it. Yeah, he really and is. He, he might be overcompensating. <clears throat> he might be grandstanding. Politicians have been known to do that. He might just try be trying to do his best. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, experience and adjudication are going to proceed forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite understandable that this reaction against woke uh, policies is taking place. It's pretty fascinating. It's not, just, it's not just happening in that state. It's happening in cities. It's happening in right. some other states, uh, you know, Montana, whatever. It's not just happening in Florida. And I would point out that, you know, however much we might be unsure about to what degree these things should be uh, legally uh, obligatory, the the statements that Florida enacted are actually pretty clear and helpful. It it isn't just a law that says, oh, can't do that. They're not as vague as their opponent. They're not vague at all, no. I mean, if these things. Yeah, if these things stood as like an aspirational statement. um, Right. They'd be pretty good. Really good. Yeah. I mean, for example, the. The state of Florida says they don't want employers or teachers or, or colleges to compel people to believe, and here's what you're not allowed to compel them to believe, that such virtues as merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, right. neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblindness are racist, sexist, or were created by members of, an, of a race to oppress others. But Let's hold on to merit, see, excellence. Right? But, but you can see 
the argument for the people who say, well, what about federal research spending yeah. in, in an atmosphere? If people are being taught that neutrality and objectivity are racist and evil, how can you have you can't. valid research yeah. going on? Right. So anyway, uh, we can see some of the <clears throat> flow of this wokeness into the K-12 system by looking at the example of the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology mm -hmm. in Northern Virginia and some other... Which is a well-known magnet school, right? It's the best... It's the best high school in the country, public mm. high school in the country, mm -hmm. I think, objectively speaking. Uh, certainly one of the five best if you want to, you know, if you're from Glencoe or something, <laughs> you have a mm -hmm. great high school. But the point is, uh, so the kids there are all, you know, pretty much high-achieving kids. They have to test to get in there. And so it's like Stuyvesant in New York City or Bronx School of Science in New York City or whatever. Lowell High School in San Francisco. So, uh, or Lowell High School when they allowed <laughs> testing to get into it. So anyway, the point is uh, the kids there are applying to highly selective colleges. And one of the ways that they can put in their applications that indicate that they're a high performer is they have national merit scholarship <clears throat> results. Okay. so. You can be a finalist, you can be a semi-finalist, you can be commended. There's all sort of different mm. levels of national merit. The national merit people send it to the schools who are the recipients, mm -hmm. and they tell the children, the students. Right. So the policy at Thomas Jefferson <laughs> was to wait a few months to tell the kids. So let's say they but got why? the results in November. Well, one of the parents called and complained and was told by a public school official at this high school that we did it because we didn't want uh, the kids that didn't get these to feel bad. We wanted to value each person in the school, and we didn't want to uh, set up differentiation of a more successful, uh, more scholarly students uh i mean you know, it, it's it's part of is radical egalitarianism and race so so the victims in this are many you know, are asian americans the overwhelming majority we can tell from last names and things like that so uh one of the one of the things is there's a kind of antagonism toward asian american mm -hmm. success and mm -hmm. merit that's going on in the public high school system. For one thing, it embarrasses the ideology of racial oppression because Asians are a minority, and you know maybe they came from originally their families came from a poor country. They may have arrived as very low income and immigrants. There, at one time, there they was plenty of oppression against plenty, and certainly in California, there <laughs> yep. was plenty uh, of oppression. Most famous uh, rhetorical example is Professor Edward Ross of Stanford, one of the founders of sociology in the United States, suggested that as ships bearing Asian American or Asian immigrants came through the Golden Gate, they should be sh the ships should be shot and sunk. Good grief. Uh, so he was fired by Stanford and that for this and for saying this. And uh, the uh, 
the, eight, the uh, American Association of University Professors was founded to defend him. That's when mm. it started. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's, that's a reversal the, of what I would normally think of yeah, that organization. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> hidden, yeah. hidden, hidden progressive era racism. and The, the point being anyway, that Asian yeah. immigrants faced loads of Met oppression. Terrible both, thing. And, both, of course, the... And they were imp- they were incarcerated during World War II, the Japanese Americans. So there's plenty of problems, anti-Chinese Exclusion Act, all, all sorts of things. Uh, Cal- in San Francisco, they had anti-Q, that's the pigtail thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they outlawed carrying things on a pole, balanced pole. They uh, said all laundries had to be stone or brick. They couldn't be wooden. Uh, all kinds of targeted things were it's, used against It's shameful. Chinese. It's like Jim Crow. Right. So there was a, a political party in San Francisco that won the mayorality, the, the mayorship uh, led by Dennis Kearney that was called the Working Men's Party. It was affiliated with the Democratic Party. And uh, they were explicitly anti-Chinese. So yeah, there were plenty of problems that the Chinese have, and Japanese have suffered from, and so anyway, their success is a kind of a problem for woke ideology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're upset at all the successful Asians, and that's part of the background. So the in this high school in Virginia, they withheld from them their national merit condemnations right. and awards, and they couldn't, and they couldn't. Put that on their applications. Wow. So that really systematically disadvantaged them. Right. So let's say they're trying to get into Caltech or Stanford or Princeton or something like that. They would want to put that on. And, and in fact, the, the other applicants have put it on. So let's right. say mm-hmm. you come from uh, Palo Alto High School. Well, you've put it on there. And uh, so, the, but this person from TJ in Virginia, they they don't have it, so they can't put it up. That just so seems less like competitive getting it. That seems really uh, harsh and discriminatory. But in the name well, of some kind of pro equality ideology, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Very so we have flip. some more. We have some other fun manifestations of all of this. So Stanford put out a list of. Uh, preferred terminology. So they they don't want you using the word American because what about other North American or South American people? Mm. You mm-hmm. should only be able to say U.S. citizen. Or I don't know, what was your favorite among the Well, I mean, there were quite a few. You're not allowed to say immigrant. You have right. to say person who immigrated. And then at Stanford, at least this is for the official, like the university's official publications right. and website, although right. recommended for right. everybody. You can't, yes, exactly. you can't talk about the need to master your subject because the verb. Right. Um, master has, sounds like slavery, right? Yeah, it sounds like. And you can't have design blind studies anymore because that might right. imply that uh, blind people are somehow abnormal that and improper. So, so you have to say so masked studies. Right. Well, mast mast implies, you know, something threatening too, right? So it really does. Masks. I know. <laughs> I don't. You know, I think this is very bizarre. And uh, if they're going to get rid of 
American. They can't say American dream anymore. It has to be That's U.S. Right. dream. That U.S. citizen dream. And also, you're yeah. not you're not supposed to say talk about um, you know how people say not to beat a dead horse. But I want to make a right. point. You can't say beat a dead horse in these if you're an official Stanford uh, person because uh, Stanford says that that phrase normalizes violence against animals. And I never realized that if I said you know don't don't beat a dead horse. As in, don't overemphasize and be preoccupied right. with something. I didn't have any right. idea that I was normalizing violence against animals. In fact, the opposite, because it's a, I was saying it was a bad thing to do is to beat a dead horse. But you can't even use the phrase. It's so if these kids from I the high know, school they're in Virginia, have, they're going to have a they're going to have a protest from Maoist communists because one of Chairman Mao's. Famous sayings has to do with beating dead horses and drowning oh, tigers. That's true. That's true. Things. He was politically anyway. This is this is <clears throat> he was well. He, just maybe they could put that in the Orwellian memory hole. I think, and this is a, of course ex- extended into University of Southern California. Their school of social work mm-hmm. is now banning the word field. So. Field of As study, in field of study, field work, going field, field work. Uh, right. So field work would be you're not just studying in a classroom; you're going out and trying to apply what you've learned, like a practicum. Your practicum, right? And so that's what they actually want to substitute mm-hmm. practicum instead of field. So uh, Ilya Soman, who's a legal scholar, constitutional scholar, <clears throat> uh, said, "Well, practicum is in Latin." And we only have these <laughs> Latin phrases because of the Roman Empire, right? Which was a very uh, despotic empire, and it I'm was. Jewish. It's su- it suppressed I'm many Ilya. many groups. He says I'm. He says I'm Ilya Soman. I'm Jewish, and uh, the Romans you know, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and did a lot of bad things to inhabitants of Judea. And so every time I hear a Latin phrase like this, I'm triggered. And so, and he then he said, <laughs> "If you think this is really stupid, what I just argued to you, it's no more stupid than what these people That's are arguing right. about the word right. field." Right. So anyway, now now some people may say, "Oh, all those silly, you know, effete higher ed people at Stanford." and derisively dismissive as no significance. But actually, this is very significant because places like Stanford, they form the upcoming generations who are the institutional leaders in both public and private life in America, these kinds of institutions. And when these institutions give the formal weight of their imprimatur to this kind of language policing, they're shaping the new generation of corporate leaders in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. These things have a big long-term... And it spills into K-12 education Absolutely, right away, yeah. too, pretty quickly. Right. Yeah, so, so I mean, the, I think the, the good thing is so that the Stanford thing, was, was embarrassed and they pulled it off their website temporarily, apparently. Yeah, it doesn't mean they're not going to still do things like oh, this. Oh, they're still going to do just, it, yeah. They, they may not. It's kind of like the gas stoves thing. You know, they pulled that. <laughs> right. Right, so the, the Biden people were going to say, we're going to roll back gas stoves. They pulled it. But that doesn't mean that that's not a, a new goal right. of the kind of eco-police that we have in our society. You know, I was informal. I actually read a piece this morning in on CNN.com um, 
which was responding to the, st- the gas stove controversy, banning gas stoves. It, I, I laugh at it, um, but the, the article was kind of stunning. The article in CNN today was uh, defending uh, the concern and saying that really gas stoves are problematic, but more importantly, that electric stoves are really good and you can cook just as well and use induction. So don't get all worried about this uh, alleged attempt to ban gas stoves because electric's great. But completely, in my view, completely missing the point. The point wasn't whether electric is effective or not effective. The point is on what jurisdictional authority does the federal government right. threaten to ban gas stoves? It's part of our natural liberty to cook as we wish. It would seem and, so. I mean, uh, cooking and eating. Not not <laughs> only are there supposed studies about childhood asthma wrong, okay, because we have studies in many thousands of subjects that show the contrary, and not only are electric stoves more dangerous from a burn standpoint, because oh, they much more dangerous. Detect the yeah. flame of a gas more easily than you can detect the mm-hmm. heat of the electric coil. Right. Uh, but it's just not the government's business right. what our cooking practices are. So I wholeheartedly concur with you on that. I mean, but, it's going to uh, come up in you know, California. Seeing, California is threatening to do it on the state level. And I would Berkeley, say from, Berkeley. And Berkeley already is Berkeley, the city of Berkeley there. is doing That's it, right. right. So I would say that from yeah. a legal point of view – at least at the state and local level, it's it's less ludicrous jurisdictionally, but it's still ridiculous, and we still ought to have it's the right ridiculous. to decide how to cook our food. Agreed. But, you know, there, these health emergencies and environmental emergencies are becoming just carte blanche for reducing our liberties. Uh, not only do they now govern immigration policy in the name of COVID. Right. <laughs> but in the last week, uh, particularly at Davos, two or three American politicians said, well, because of some wrong things that were on the internet about COVID, some of which they think are wrong, but weren't wrong. But anyway, they want to censor free speech in the name of health. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also had uh, Congresswoman, oh, I'm going to get her first name wrong, but Jackson Lee, it's Sheila, Sheila, Sheila Jackson Lee, yes. mm-hmm. saying that uh, any kind of thing that leads to, let's say you criticize immigration policy or, well, that's racist and therefore you should have your free speech taken away. I mean, wow. Jonathan Turley pointed out this is a this this bill that she's proposing is a direct assault on the first amendment, but all sorts of ideas about crises and emergencies, mm-hmm. you know, emergency uh, power. In this case in, in this case supposed danger of of racial instant racial oppression of some sort, racial violence. Uh is giving people an excuse to tackle our liberties, whether it's speech or cooking. Uh, what's this significance, Bill, of uh, this uh, this Title Forty Two principle, whereby immigrants under Trump and into Biden administration were expelled on the basis of COVID issues? Um, this is a little confusing. It's related to what you were saying just now. Can you uh, unwind right. that? Right. 
Well, I think it's a little complicated to unwind the whole detail of it, but essentially we had this COVID epidemic and we were in lockdowns and we had a lot of immigrants flowing over the border. So the president, in this case, President Trump, said, look, under the law, I can, I can block people from coming or send them back if I have a public health emergency. Right. So there's an emergency with I special power. Mm-hmm. Right. So now then you have a situation where we've more acclimatized to COVID-19. It's vast majority of the people have had it. It's receding. Uh, it, it, the severity is certainly less of the, the variants that people are getting. And the government is rolling back most of the restrictions, many of which shouldn't have been in place in the first place. But anyway, they're rolling them back. But they're keeping this one because of various court cases and various inadequate legislation. They don't really have a very good system for vetting people at the border and processing them and allowing people to become naturalized. The whole thing is many decades out of date and unstreamlined and a mess. And nobody can get their act together in Congress to deal with it. And they also even see some advantages in keeping it a mess, some of them. So anyway, they're using this as a kind of a stopgap, but it's really unconstitutional, it right. seems to me. Uh, there's no, there is no real health emergency going on anymore. And, uh, you know, so they shouldn't be. But, you know, what's funny about it is that many of the people who have been rightly up in arms over the extension of government power by the use of these emergency declarations for for COVID and so forth. Some of those same people are wanting to keep the special Title 42 expulsion uh, power in place because they see it as a way of defending the border. And so there's got to be a kind of I, I mean we can kind of we can kind of sympathize with that yeah. but I think we have to say it's unconstitutional and they should right. not be doing it it's unlawful. Right. So the real problem is uh they're not enforcing the existing law. Right. And where there are problems with the existing law Congress is not attending to them. Right. So I think it's clear, you know, We've had previous presidents that have had more or less the same law that were able to manage the border. Uh, there's nothing wrong with some immigrants coming into the country, but we want to pick up terrorists. We want to have some, you know, if, if, there, if we don't really want heavily diseased people coming in, so we'd like to kind of check on that. And we'd like to have a process. and. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have that very well. Right. I mean, the thing is— So they're just using this as a stopgap, but it should not be what is used. Yeah, it's the wrong wrong tool to get what you want. I mean, really, like every other nation in the world, the United States is entitled to have lawful borders with people entering lawfully, not unlawfully, and being able to restrict unlawful entry. But then, right. and I've been saying that. But violating yes. violating our own law by using Title Forty Two as a stopgap for the failure to have a lawful border is just sort of deepening our problem with lawfulness. And right. so, don't use it. 
That's what I say. But it seems we like want, a, we want a rule of law. We want a rule of that's law. That's what we really need, yeah. And that also includes we want lawful immigrants. But we the want point lawful is, immigrants, absolutely. We want a lot of lawful we immigrants. We want lawful <laughs> everywhere. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, we've covered a lot of territory here, Bill. Do you want to uh, take us on any further segment of this interesting conversation today? I think we should say something about the deadlock over peace in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's lots of crazy things going on in the world, fun things we could talk about, but it's a very interesting problem in Ukraine. So both the Russians and the Ukrainians think they're winning. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, one may think more, you know, we're winning in the long term. I mean, basically they both think that. Right. And so they're setting up impossible conditions to, to meet for even, to even seriously discuss. So the Russians say, well, we'll be glad to talk peace, but it has to include uh, incorporation. It has to be based already on the, the Ukrainians accepting incorporation of Ukraine and the Novorossiya Eastern of Donbass Crimea plus areas. Of, of Crime, Crimea and plus all those, those other, areas. All, <clears throat> yes. They have to accept the legitimacy of that and then... We'll talk after that. Well, the Russians don't even control, you know, half of that area. So uh, Ukrainians are not going to accept that. Ukrainians say, okay, uh, we'll be glad to talk, but the Russians have to be militarily out of Crimea and all the eastern Ukrainian areas that they're in now and the leadership of Russia has to be put before Nuremberg-style war crimes tribunals. Then we will be glad to talk. In other words, we, well, we won't talk. Gonna, we won't talk. That's what that they're means. Both, they're <laughs> both having, you know, and they both think, I mean, the Ukrainians think if they kept getting a flow of weapons, the U.S. apparently has a gigantic store of weapons in Israel, which was hardly known by me, uh -huh. and they want to take these weapons that have been stored in Israel and start sending them to Ukraine. Uh, the Russians think uh, well, they have they can conscript vast numbers of people in the Russian Federation. Maybe they can get Belarus to participate more mm -hmm. actively and so mm -hmm. forth. So they they're thinking well they have the manpower to do this. They're going to keep on fighting, and uh, they're you know they're they're kind of trying to hold the line, kind of like in World War One, but then they're trying to damage the infrastructure of the Ukrainians. That's their approach. The Ukrainians are defending their own territory, so they have better morale, and mm -hmm. they think that they can hold out. And they're starting to attack in various ways with drones and commandos, stuff inside Russia. So they want to keep on fighting. But this is terrible for the Ukrainian people. Oh, it's and terrible it's not that them. great for the Russian people. If there's mass, uh, you know, what do they call it? Um, enlist <clears throat> not enlistment, but forced uh, conscription, conscription in Russia of, to, yeah. of millions of, of people, primarily men, that's going to take a big toll on Russian society. Right. <clears throat> well, as al already... You know, governments don't want to reveal what kind of a toll a war takes on right. the economy, mm -hmm. so they're not really disclosing it. But uh, it's not—it's not. 
The, the Russians thought, oh, well, we'll cripple Western Europe, who are helping to supply Ukraine with cutting off natural gas and things to Western Europe. But Western Europeans have figured out other ways to get through the winter. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Americans and the Western Europeans are saying, well, we'll cripple the Russian economy by putting all these sanctions on it. Mm. Well, it's hurt, but they're turning to India and they're turning to China and they're turning to Iran for some military supplies. And the Russians are figuring out how to adjust. The real thing is they should be getting peace out of this and mm -hmm. they should have honest plebiscites that help some of right. the people in these border areas decide which country they want to be under, and that should be the end of it. I mean, the and result of that would likely be that the Donbass areas would probably stay Ukrainian and the Crimea would probably stay Russian. I think that's right, but some of the Donbass might want to be in Russia. They too. might. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I think it would have been more that wanted to be in Russia before this war. That's right. That's the backfire on Russia. Of their They've actually mentality. lost popularity mm -hmm. in eastern Ukraine. Right. I mean, one big obstacle here is that if Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government regards Russia as the embodiment of pure evil, uh, not to be ever compromised with, and if the Russians feel the same way about right. Ukraine and its westernizing values, that's the embodiment of pure evil. It's hard to see how there could be honest conversation if you think that you're talking to the embodiment of pure evil. And also it means for the next 50 years there's going to be serious tension and problems there. I mean, it's kind right. of like the, the, the Soviet Union invaded Poland at the end of World War One. So the Poles stopped them, but it meant that there was terrible antagonism between Poland and Russia. Which remains. Which, right, <laughs> it's still, that's right. It's still, there's still bad blood from that today. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, it certainly was intense for the next few decades. So... Yes, we live in a is world there hope? Is there problems. hope? My only hope is that there could be there's enough hard-headed realists. Yeah, there's always hope, but maybe because there's, there might eventually be enough hard-headed realists in Moscow to recognize that the, the toll on Russia is not worth holding out for absolute, complete victory. We'll see. We will see. Yeah. Thank you, Bill, for your insights on this and so much else. Um, we do invite all of our friends uh, who want background on many of these issues to visit our website at independent.org. We have a lot of resources for you, especially I invite you to visit uh, the section on Bill Evers' Center on Educational Excellence. Thank you so much for joining us on Independent Outlook. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody.